This morning, I would ask you to take your Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter 21. We will be examining the first 11 verses under the heading, The Coronation of the King. The Coronation of the King. Follow along as I read Matthew 21, beginning in verse 1. When they had approached Jerusalem and had come to Bethpage at the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, Go into the village opposite you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied there and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord has need of them, and immediately he will send them. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, gentle and mounted on a donkey, even a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did just as Jesus had instructed them, And brought the donkey and the colt and laid their coats on them, and he sat on the coats. Most of the crowds spread their coats in the road, and others were cutting branches from the trees and spreading them in the road. The crowds going ahead of him and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. When he had entered Jerusalem, all the city was stirred, saying, Who is this? And the crowds were saying, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee. Today we celebrate what is traditionally called Palm Sunday, commemorating Jesus' triumphal entry in to Jerusalem, although the event actually took place on a Monday, as you will see. I want to take you there. I want you to come with me to Jerusalem on that day. Jerusalem was absolutely electric with excitement. There was an estimated 2.6 million Jews that had gathered there to celebrate Passover, which is very significant. Many of these people had been healed by Jesus. Thousands had witnessed his miracles, especially his raising of Lazarus from the dead. And now a massive crowd congregates around him as he makes a two-mile trek from Bethany to Jerusalem. Word about his coming into Jerusalem had spread like wildfire. In fact, messianic fervor had been ablaze for a long time, the hope that finally a long-awaited deliverer would come and deliver them from Rome. During the Passover season that commemorated their ancient deliverance from Egypt, and little did they know that the Messiah that they would coronate on Monday would be the Passover lamb that they would kill on Friday. Little did they know that Jesus had initiated all of this as a judgment against them, causing them to affirm his messianic credentials by crying out, Hosanna to the son of David, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord, Hosanna in the highest. But by the end of the week, they would be saying, we will not have this man reign over us, crucify him. It's important to understand the context here, and I'm going to spend a bit of time helping you see this so that this passage will come alive for you. So I want to take you for a moment to Luke 19, if you'll take your Bibles and turn there. The context here is just prior to entering Jerusalem from Jericho, we see Jesus refuting the idea that the kingdom would, quote, appear immediately which was a common misconception among the Jews and even the disciples. In Luke 19, verse 11, we read, while they were listening to these things, Jesus went on to tell a parable because he was near Jerusalem and they supposed that the kingdom of God was going to appear immediately. 
But what we see in this parable is that Jesus also wanted to demonstrate that the Messiah must first depart before he could return again as the king to establish his earthly kingdom. In verse 12, we read, So he said, A nobleman went to a distant country to receive a kingdom for himself and then return. Now let me pause here. His listeners would have understood the historical context of what Jesus was saying here as the background for his parable because it is rooted in, in actual events that they were familiar with. In fact, one in particular. We know that all native princes were required to journey to Rome before they could receive the right from Caesar to rule. And this was true of Herod Archelaus, with whom they would have all been familiar. You see, his father, Herod the Great, along with the army, had proclaimed Archelaus to be their leader. But he did not have the right to rule until he first received official permission from Caesar Augustus in Rome. So he had to go to Rome, which took many months to receive that permission. And some Jews, we know, actually followed him to Rome to protest his petition to rule over them. But eventually in 4 BC, Caesar Augustus granted him authority over Samaria, Judea, and Idumea. So before he could reign over his kingdom, he had to receive authority to rule. This is the background here of Jesus' parable, right before he goes into Jerusalem. Back to verse 12 of Luke 19, the nobleman represents Jesus who travels to a, quote, distant country, a reference to to heaven, which is connected to his resurrection and his ascension. And there he would gain official authority from his father to, quote, receive a kingdom for himself. And only then could he return to reign over his kingdom. And for this reason, Jesus says in Matthew 28 and verse 18, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. We also read, for example, in Psalm 110, David declaring the Lord, the Messiah, needing to have a session at the right hand of God in heaven before he comes to earth to rule. Moreover, in Acts 3, beginning in verse 19 through verse 21, we have a description of the coming era of the millennial kingdom. It's referred to as, quote, times of refreshing and, quote, times of restoration of all things. And there we learn in verse 21 that, quote, heaven must receive Jesus until the period of restoration of all things. Well, this is the same sequence that occurred with Archelaus. Back to Luke 19, in verses 13 through 15, Jesus continues his parable. And there we read, And he called ten of his slaves and gave them ten minas and said to them, Do business with this until I come back. Now these slaves represent servants of Christ who were to use their gifts, use their talents for Jesus in the interim period between his first and second coming. The text goes on to say, but his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. And again, this would have been very familiar to the people given the historical context of Archelaus. But these citizens represent unbelievers who hate the nobleman Jesus and refuse his rule over them. The text goes on to say, when he returned after receiving the kingdom, he ordered that these slaves to whom he had given the money be called to him so that he might know what business they had done. And you will recall the parable goes on to discuss how three of the servants used their their minas and and the citizens who opposed them were slain, according to verse 27. But there Jesus also describes how the faithful slaves were given authority in the nobleman's kingdom. The first slave was given, quote, authority over 10 cities, verse 17. The second, authority over five cities, verse 18. But it's also important to note that neither the nobleman nor the faithful servants were reigning while the nobleman was traveling to the distant country. They only reigned when he returned. And we see these truths underscored in other passages where the reign of the saints coincide with the reign of the Messiah. 
We see this, for example, in Revelation 2, verses 26 and, and 27, and chapter 5 and verse 10, uh, uh, ch- uh, chapter 20 and verse 4 that we just read a few minutes ago. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 6, verses 2 and 3, we read that, that the saints will someday judge and rule the world and angels. Staggering. In fact, when I was thinking this through this week, I got so excited about this. I know I'm not the most emotional person in the world. Internally, I'm probably more emotional than you realize. I got so excited thinking about this, I had to go into Nancy and say, Honey, we've got to talk. Let me just remind you of what God is up to and what's going to happen. Can you believe this? This is overwhelming. And we had a great time of worship right there in the kitchen, which most worship takes place in our house. So the purpose of Jesus' entry into Jerusalem was to present himself to Israel as their Messiah king, as we will see. But consistent with his parable in Luke 19, Israel's rejection of Jesus would mean that the kingdom's arrival would be delayed and Israel would face judgment for rejecting her Messiah. However, a day is coming, according to Scripture, when Israel's cry will be heard by the Lord and Jesus will come and they will experience national salvation and restoration. But the Messiah's universal reign over the earth will not be established until he returns from heaven after having received authority from the Father to reign, which, of course, he now has. Moreover, when he returns, he is going to reward faithful servants who use their gifts and their talents between his first and second coming. And, of course, that speaks to all of us, does it not? And part of that reward will be to grant them ruling authority in his kingdom according to their level of faithfulness. And as we see in the parable and other passages, unbelievers who resist Jesus' authority will be destroyed. Now, the first century people didn't understand all of this. The disciples did not understand all of this. Not until later when Jesus sent the Holy Spirit to them, as we read in John 12 and verse 16. You see, no one understood the nature of his kingdom. They didn't really understand what all was going on. They didn't realize that they had a bigger problem with God than they had with Rome. They didn't understand that they first must be delivered from their sin before they could experience the blessings of his earthly millennial kingdom and the eternal kingdom to follow. Now, as a footnote, because I want to make sure you understand this biblically, as many people get confused, the Bible speaks of two ages. There is the present age, which describes conditions on the earth before Jesus returns, the age in which we live. And then there is the, quote, age to come, which describes conditions on earth after he returns. And even as this present age has various eras and dispensations, the, quote, age to come has two phases, the millennium and the eternal kingdom. The millennium is primarily the kingdom of the last Adam, the Messiah, where Jesus reigns on David's throne for a thousand years along with the saints, all of which is consistent with the, the Old Testament covenants, especially the Davidic covenant in 2 Samuel 7. And then when the end comes, according to 1 Corinthians fifteen twenty four, quote, He, referring to Jesus, hands over the kingdom to the God and Father when he has abolished all rule and authority and power. And, of course, this inaugurates the second phase of the age to come known as the eternal kingdom. Now, in contrast to the millennial kingdom, the eternal kingdom involves the direct reign of both the Father and the Son. And while the nations are subjected to Christ in both kingdom phases in the millennium, the nations can still sin, but in the eternal kingdom, they do not. In the millennium, there is still some sin and some death. There is marriage, there is childbirth, but none of these things will exist in the eternal kingdom. In both phases, the curse is lifted, but that removal is final and permanent 
in the eternal kingdom. That's why I often think and like to say that the millennial kingdom is the consummating bridge between human history and the eternal state. Now, there are other distinctions, but hopefully this gives you some frame of reference. So as we come to Matthew chapter 21, these first 11 verses, Jesus is presenting himself as Israel's Messiah. But the blessings of his universal reign on earth, the millennium, were conditioned upon Israel's repentance and their belief in their king. king. Now, a little bit more context here. Bear with me, because this is important. Jesus described something very interesting in Mark 1.15. There he says, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. You see, this announcement of the kingdom required Israel to make a decision to repent and to believe in their Messiah, but they refused. Despite all of his miracles performed to authenticate both his message and him as their messenger, the Messiah. And what's really interesting as we study scripture, we see that the battle lines were drawn early on in his ministry when in his initial cleansing of the temple at the beginning of his ministry, he made his first great public assertion of his messianic rights. John 2, beginning in verse 16, he said, stop making my father's house a house of merchandise. There it says that his disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for thy house will consume me. But the tide of opposition continued to mount over the course of Jesus' ministry as the Messiah King offered himself to Israel. But the climax of this rejection occurred when the Pharisees attributed his miraculous works to Satan. Here you have the spirit-anointed Messiah performing all of these things that were irrefutable. And yet the leaders of Israel attributed those works to Satan. And from that time on, the offer of the immediate establishment of the kingdom on earth was withdrawn. And Jesus' ministry began to focus more on the death of the king and his second coming. So as we look at the New Testament, we see beginning in Matthew 13, Christ sets forth the mystery form of the kingdom through a new series of parables, whereby he deliberately confused the hard-hearted and unbelieving multitudes as an act of judicial hardening. And then he announces the building of a new thing, his church, a body of believers with special authority in the future kingdom of heaven. These would be the ones that would form the spiritual nucleus of the future kingdom. And in Matthew 16, verse 15 and following, upon the testimony of Peter that Christ is the son of the living God, Jesus said, upon this rock, I will build my church and the gates of Hades shall not overpower it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Keys in scripture always speak of of authority and stewardship. And so now the church becomes the new custodian of the truths of the kingdom. And Jesus described this further in Matthew 21, verse 43. Therefore, I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing the fruit of it. Referring to the church, which Peter described as a holy nation, 1 Peter 2, 9. So after coming to his own and his own refusing to believe who he is, and after announcing the mystery form of the kingdom that will exist in the church age, Jesus begins to explain his death and his resurrection in more detail. And the disciples just couldn't wrap their mind around it. Matthew 16, 21, we read, From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised up on the third day. But I want you to understand that the cross was not the central theme early on in his ministry because Jesus was preparing to offer himself as the Messiah King of Israel, which they refused. But then to reassure his disciples 
that his impending death would not in any way cancel out the promise, promises of the kingdom and to show them that its establishment would be in association with his second coming as king of kings. He peels back some of his flesh on the Mount of Transfiguration in Matthew 17 and the effulgence of some of his glory blazes forth so they can see the reality of, once again, of who Jesus really is. And then in Matthew 19 and verse 28, as further assurance that kingdom promises would not be abandoned, Jesus promised the disciples a special place in the coming earthly kingdom. Here's what he says, Truly I say to you, that you who have followed me in the regeneration, which literally means the new world, referring to the millennium, that you who have followed me in the regeneration when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you also shall sit upon 12 thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Now with that background, dear friends, as we come to Matthew 21, as the king makes his solemn march, to his rejection and crucifixion at the hands of his own kinsmen, we see that Jesus is meticulous to not omit one single physical detail of Old Testament prophecies concerning the long-awaited kingdom. Dear friends, here our precious Savior enters the very city that he has established. I mean, this is Mount Moriah. This is where Abraham's faith was tested and confirmed by his willingness to trust God regarding the sacrifice of Isaac, knowing that God would be faithful to raise him from the dead and fulfill his covenant promises through him. This is the place, Jerusalem, where the Ark of the Covenant had rested. The Ark, the symbol of of God's glorious presence. This is Mount Zion. This is the city of David. This is that city upon a hill that once contained Solomon's temple, and at this time now the second temple. And we know that as Jesus comes to the city, it isn't like he's waving a banner and he's all excited and isn't everything wonderful. Instead, he's weeping, he's crying out, lamenting over their unbelief. We read about this in Luke 13, beginning in verse 34. Jesus comes to the city and he says, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who sent sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together just as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you would not have it. Behold, your house is left to you desolate. And I say to you, you shall not see me until the time comes when you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, a reference to his second coming. Dear friends, we must understand that the Messiah King does not enter his city with joy, but with immense sorrow, with tears streaming down his face. Luke 19, beginning in verse 41, helps us see this even more clearly. It says, and when he approached... He saw the city and wept over it, saying, If you had known in this day, even you, the things which make for peace, but now they have been hidden from your eyes. For the days shall come upon you when your enemies will throw up a bank before you and surround you and hem you in on every side and will level you to the ground and your children within you. And they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. And 70 years later, or in 70 AD, I should say, on April 9, which was just a few years later, this was fulfilled perfectly. Titus Vespasian of Rome came in, laid siege to the city in the summer, slowly starved all of the inhabitants, and the Romans finally came in and systematically slaughtered them attacking one part of the city at a time. By the way, the people that he killed were the very ones that we read about here in Matthew 21 that were praising the king coming into Jerusalem, but all for the wrong reasons. The temple was utterly destroyed. They took the remaining captives to Rome to be mocked and butchered in the Roman circus and the gladiator bouts. 
And so, folks, our Lord's entrance into Jerusalem marks the beginning of the Passion Week where he comes to suffer and to die, but a week that culminates in his resurrection. Now, to help us grasp these astounding realities here in this text, I've divided it into three sections. We're going to see a sovereign orchestration, a symbolic procession, and a senseless coronation. Hopefully this will all make sense to you given the background here. And I pray that we will all get lost once again in the wonder of God's kingdom purposes and the glory of his grace that extends to all who trust in him. First of all, I want you to notice this is a sovereign orchestration. This isn't plan B. This isn't something that just kind of happened, as some would argue, that Jesus just kind of got swept up in the crowd. Notice in verse 1, he simply says, when they had approached Jerusalem and had come to Bethpage at the Mount of Olives. Now, let's stop there. I want you to, again, think of what's happened here. Jesus has lived in total obscurity for 30 years. And then he comes out and he ministers publicly for three years, always in perfect obedience to the Father's will. And now, unlike any other coronation of a king, he enters into Jerusalem with no pomp, with no ceremony, with no magnificent pageantry that they would have been familiar with. And, of course, all of this was ordained in eternity past. Multitudes have now followed him from Jericho. They're going to Passover. And many others from Bethpage, which was a small village close to Bethany, the home of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. And in John 12, beginning in verse 1 through verse 3, we read that Jesus visited them, quote, six days before the Passover. No doubt he went to them, to his friends, to find comfort, to find strength in their relationship because he was about to be sacrificed as the Passover lamb to be slain. And now, bear in mind, this is Passover, so hundreds of thousands of Jews, the Jewish faithful, were making their annual pilgrimage. Census records of that era, 10 years later, indicated that there was over 2.6 million worshipers with 260,000 lambs that were slaughtered. And that would be a minimum of one for every 10 people. And perhaps there was more on this day with Jesus. But since, according to John, Jesus was at Bethany six days before the Passover, we realize that this is probably on Saturday, on Shabbat, and it was on the next day, Sunday, that the Jewish crowds come to Jesus in John 12 and Lazarus, it says, whom he raised from the dead. So as we go to John 12, beginning in verse 12, we read, On the next day, the great multitude who had come to the feast, when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, took the branches of the palm trees and went out to meet him and began to cry out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. So it's much more likely that it was on Monday rather than the traditional Palm Sunday that this happened. After Jesus had been in Bethany with Lazarus, then he traveled from Bethpage, making his way through the eastern gate of Jerusalem. A Monday triumphal entry, by the way, is also very important because of the Mosaic Law. You must understand that according to Exodus 12, verses 2 and 6, 2 through 6, we read that sacrificial lambs for Passover had to be selected on the 10th day of the first month. Then that lamb had to be taken into the home. It had to be loved by the family until the time of sacrifice, which would occur on the 14th. Therefore, only a Monday triumphal entry would fulfill this important symbolism because the year Jesus was crucified, the 10th of Nisan was on the Monday of that Passover week. You see, this would allow the Jews to nationally select Jesus as their Passover lamb, even though they didn't understand all of that, to take him into their heart and into their home symbolically, and then to sacrifice him on Friday, the 14th of Nisan. What a coincidence, right? <laughs> 
Folks, this amazing event recorded in Scripture was decreed in eternity past by a sovereign God. In fact, 600 years before this, the Holy Spirit revealed to the prophet Daniel the precise date that this would happen, though Daniel didn't fully understand it. We read in Daniel 9 and verse 25 that the time for Artaxerxes' decree Quote, to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. Literally, in the original language, it's the idea of, of seven sevens and 62 sevens, referring to a week of years. I've done this before, I won't do it today, but if you do the math, you will see that 430, 483 years after Artaxerxes decreed to Nehemiah, the Messiah, the Prince, was presented to the Jewish nation on April 10, 30 A.D. Likewise, I might add that our Lord's triumphal yet very hum- humble entry was predicted 500 years earlier in Zechariah 9, beginning in verse 9. This is the very text that Matthew quotes here in verse 5. There we read, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion! Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem! Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and having salvation, lowly and riding on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. That was predicted 500 years earlier. It's also fascinating that in the first eight verses of Zechariah 9, leading up to this text, we see God pledging protection of Jerusalem through his use of Alexander the Great, which indeed happened. We know that after Alexander went down and conquered Egypt, he returned through Israel and did her no harm. And it is this kind of supernatural protection that God had in mind for Israel that the prophet addressed. And of course, the point of that whole passage is simply this. If God can use a pagan to judge the nations and save Israel, how much more will he use his righteous Messiah. So friends, all of the events of history up to this point have been perfectly orchestrated by a sovereign God to fulfill his eternal purposes. In fact, all of the Bible is, is, I shouldn't say all of the Bible, all through the Bible, we have prophecies that have been fulfilled literally thus far which would cause us to believe that the rest will be as well. In fact, Jesus always expected a literal fulfillment of Old Testament prophecies in connection to his second coming. In fact, in Matthew 5 and verse 18, Jesus said, For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. And since Jesus is referring to everything that is stated in the law and the prophets, according to verse 17 of that passage, this means that everything predicted in the Old Testament must happen. The universe cannot pass away until all of these things that have been predicted transpire. So again, all of these events point to a sovereign God that has orchestrated them. Well, I must hurry ahead. In verse 1, we see Jesus now approaching Jerusalem purposefully, voluntarily, obedient to do the Father's will. It was not only a sovereign orchestration. Secondly, it was a symbolic procession. Isn't it interesting in verse 2? He sends disciples to a predetermined, preordained location to secure for him, quote, a donkey tied there and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. And if anyone says something to you, you shall say the Lord has need of them. And immediately he will send them. And of course, Mark's gospel, for example, reveals that this is precisely what happened. They were tied outside near a door and a group asked, you know, what are you doing? And they told them and everything was okay. Folks, such foreknowledge and omniscience is yet another illustration of the deity of Christ. But I also see another fascinating truth embedded in this seemingly incidental scenario. I want you to notice there are two donkeys. There's a mare and a colt. Now, as a horseman, I understand these things. I've been around horses and trained horses most of my life. 
And we know that a mare and a colt can be basically the same size. It's not like always one is much larger than the other. And Mark and Luke verify the fact that no one has ever sat upon the colt. Well, that's an interesting statement. I wonder why that was put there. Well, as a horseman, I know that it would be an absolute miracle for anyone to sit on a colt that has never been written and not get bucked off. Most of us have enough sense to know that. We call those types of creatures Widowmaker or Diablo or something along that line, right? Now, we also know that that donkeys are extremely temperamental, very suspicious, very fearful. In cowboy culture, the old saying is, a donkey is like a horse, and even more so. You get the idea. Well, let me take you back to Genesis 9 for a moment. God warned Noah that a drastic change would take place after the ark rested, after all that they had experienced with the animals on the ark. In verses 2 and 3, he says, And the fear of you and the terror of you shall be on every beast of the earth and on every bird of the sky. With everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea into your hand, they are given. Every moving thing that is alive shall be food for you. Vegans hate that passage, by the way. I give all to you and I give the green plant. Here's the point. After the situation there with Noah and the ark, the animals, as part of the curse were terrified of man. They are to this day. And a horse and a donkey, we know, are herbivores. And all herbivores are afraid of carnivores. Guess what we are? We are carnivores. And so it's hard to gain their trust. They live in constant fear. That is part of the curse. And friends, I can tell you from being around wild donkeys and wild horses, if you take your garment... And put on that little creature a garment that smells like a carnivore. The thing that goes through that animal's mind is I might be dinner. They are terrified. And then you try riding a young male donkey that has never been ridden. And then on top of that, let's ride that little animal over hundreds of thousands of carnivore garments spread on the ground. And then let's add to that thousands of people waving palm branches. Thousands of people screaming. I might add thousands of carnivores screaming. Folks, this is the little fellow's worst nightmare. I would submit to you that even well-trained police horses that are trained to work in crowds, they probably wouldn't be able to handle that level of chaos. And even broke, donkeys are notorious for bad manners. Like a lot of horses, we say they like to hunt boogers. That means that every little thing will scare them. A little leaf falls and he shies. I mean, these little fellows will shy and balk and bite and kick and buck and run off very easily. They're utterly terrified until we gain their trust. So with all of that, I would submit to you that obviously this little fellow's creator miraculously calmed him down. What a miracle. And I believe this was a foretaste of millennial blessing that promised time of restoration and regeneration, both physically and spiritually, when the king returns in all of his glory. Isaiah 11, verse 6, when the wolf will lie down with the lamb, the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, the calf and the young lion and the fatling together, and a little child shall lead them, the cow and the bear shall graze, their young ones shall lie down together, the lion shall eat straw like the ox, the nursing child shall play by the cobra's hole, and the weaned child shall put his hand in the viper's den. I don't want to make a big deal about this, but... I believe that hidden in this amazing scenario is an example of the power of Jesus to miraculously cancel the effects of the curse in this young donkey 
that had never been ridden. This was a, a subtle affirmation where Jesus is saying, yes, I am the Almighty. I am the promised one who will one day accomplish all that I have promised. The pristine happiness and the peace of Eden will one day come, that time of regeneration, a time of tranquility that you can see in this little fellow that I'm riding, this little donkey that's bearing his creator. But today I come on a beast of burden because I'm coming to bear the burdens of your sins. Today I come to save from sin, not from Rome. You know, it's intriguing to think about it, I think at least, that no warrior, no conquering king would ever ride a donkey, right? I mean, imagine, folks, just going to a rodeo and all of a sudden the cowboys come out and they're riding a donkey, right? So what's going on here? Why are you riding those little donkeys? I remember one of the brandings I was on in, in Montana. They had a, they had a donkey, and, and we were daring each other to ride it. So I thought, I'll, I'll get on the little guy. And so I got on him, and my feet are almost touching the ground. And my cowboy friends are laughing at me and making me endure all manner of cowboy trash talk. I mean, you get the idea. It's a humiliating thing. And it's amazing to think how that even in our culture, what we ride is somehow connected to our own dignity, right? I mean, l l let's face it. Would you rather, guys, would you rather ride a Harley or a moped, right? You get the idea? Hope I don't offend anybody. This just comes to my mind. But um, would you rather drive a pickup or a minivan? You get the idea? So Jesus rides a lowly donkey, symbolic of humility, not the mighty steed of a conquering king. And though he is the Lord of hosts and he has myriads at his command, he's essentially saying, my invisible army waits for another day when I return in power and great glory. But today my warriors are fishermen. They are common people, common folks. And they march on their knees in prayer and they wield the sword of the spirit, the word of God. My subjects are not great and powerful. They are not the, the, the politically powerful or the religious elite, but they are the meek and the lowly. And today I ride towards my temple, not a palace. Today I ride towards a cross, not a throne. I come not to be crowned, but to be crucified. In fact, my crown is one of thorns, not of jewels. My robe is not a royal robe, but the garb of a peasant, for foxes have holes and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. And though I am the King of kings, my kingdom is not of this world, so I come in humility, symbolized by me riding on this donkey. It was a sovereign orchestration, a symbolic procession, and finally, it was a senseless coronation. Notice in verses 8 and 9, and most of the multitude spread their garments in the road, and others were cutting branches from the trees and spreading them in the road. The multitudes going ahead of him and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. I mean, folks, they're thinking, my, here he is, that great miracle worker that has fed thousands. And some of them were participants of that miracle. Many of them had been healed by Jesus they had been left speechless by his compelling teaching and his knowledge of truth. And so they're thinking, here he comes. He is going to deliver us from Roman bondage. He's going to meet all of our physical needs and bring in the long-awaited kingdom. So they throw their garments on the road, on the road which, by the way, was an ancient custom. When, when kings would come, they're... Their subjects would display their utter submission to his lordship by putting their garments on the road. And according to ancient culture and even in scripture, we see that palm branches are symbolic of joy and salvation. So imagine the scene here. Jesus has an enormous crowd behind him, an enormous crowd in front of him. And then 
hundreds of thousands more in Jerusalem. And they're shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Hosanna means save now. This is an exclamation of of supplication and adoration. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And that's a quote from Psalm 118 in verse 26. Part of, of six psalms known as the Hallel, meaning praise. And you know when those psalms were sung? At Passover. And you know what Passover commemorated? Their deliverance from Egypt. So you can see that all of this is coming together in ways that they couldn't even begin to understand. In fact, it's hard for us to wrap our minds around it as we look back in history. And tragically, they failed to make the connection of Zechariah 9.9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and having salvation, lowly and riding on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. And sadly, like so many people today, they had fabricated their own Jesus, their own God, their own deliverer, one that had no resemblance of the true Savior, the Messianic King. They wanted someone that would make them healthy, wealthy, successful, not someone that would bear their sin and provide for them a way to be reconciled to a holy God and be granted eternal life. John MacArthur said this, quote, Although the shouts of the multitude were entirely appropriate and were, in fact, fulfillment of prophecy, the people had no idea of the true significance of what they were doing, much less of what Jesus would soon do on the cross on their behalf. They neither understood the Lord nor themselves. He intentionally did not enter Jerusalem with a powerful retinue of soldiers who would fight for him to the death. He entered instead with a ragtag multitude of ordinary people, most of whom, despite their loud proclamation of his greatness, would soon turn against him and none of whom would stand by him. Folks, what a senseless, irrational pointless coronation. In fact, in verses 10 and 11, we read, when he entered Jerusalem, all the city was stirred, saying, who is this? And the crowds were saying, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee. It's amazing, isn't it? Even with all the hoopla, all the emotional frenzy, a lot of the people didn't really know who he was. This is the prophet, they said, Jesus from Nazareth, in Galilee. So folks, in closing, we have to say, what kind of king was this? Well, I hope you understand how to answer that now. Where is his golden crown studded with jewels? Where is his purple robe that would adorn his royal majesty? Where where are those things? Where's his golden scepter? Where's his palace? Where's his throne? What do we make of this? A king that rides on a donkey Oh, dear friends, I hope you can see that though he is the almighty sovereign that has created the very universe that he rules, he's not riding on a gallant steed toward a throne, but a beast of burden towards a cross. A condescension condescension that, that, that we have no ability to grasp. And yet you have self-righteous people who wanted a very different Messiah. Maybe it's the type of God that you want. One that will help you get your life straightened out and help you have more money and maybe heal your sicknesses and make you more successful in life. That's how these people were. They were earthbound. They were consumed with temporal comforts. They had no thought of their spiritual condition. No thought about eternity. They cared about only what they wanted for themselves. And they certainly had no desire to understand what God had said in his word. It's interesting. If you go on to read the very first thing that Jesus did after he entered the city. Was go and cleanse the temple. The very thing that he did at the beginning of his ministry. And that, of course, set into motion his crucifixion. Well, folks, what about you? 
What have you done with Jesus? Is he your savior and your king? Do you submit to him? Do you pray thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven? Is that the passion of your heart? Are you longing to see Jesus? Oh, I hope you are. Or do you just live for yourself? You're just the master of your own little kingdom with no thought of eternity, no thought of your own sin and the judgment of God that you deserve, and you're unwilling to bow to his authority unless he can give you stuff that you want. Well, folks, if that is you, then Christ is not your savior, nor is he your king, but he will one day be your judge and your executioner. So I plead with you as a minister of the gospel, see Christ for who he really is and humble yourself before him. Cry out to him for the mercy that you do not deserve, that I do not deserve, and he will save you. And folks, those of you that know and love Christ, may I remind you of something I say quite a bit. Jesus is coming again. Amen? If you don't believe that, there is something seriously wrong, not just with your theology, but with your heart. Jesus is coming again. And he's not coming again in humility to seek and to save. He is coming in glory to rule and to reign. And so as a people, may we be committed to be faithful servants, to honor him in every area of our life. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for these eternal truths. May they bear much fruit in each of our hearts. And Lord, for those that do not know you as Savior, who have just kind of their own religious ideas and who just live for themselves, who know in their heart that their lives are an utter disaster, how I pray that by the power of your Spirit, you will convict them, help them to see their sin and their Savior and be saved. I ask this in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen. We pray you've been edified by this presentation. You've been listening to the teaching ministry of Calvary Bible Church in Jolton, Tennessee. For more information on Calvary Bible Church or for more audio, please visit our website at cbctn.org.